morning, friends. Good to be with all of you today here in the room and those online. Good, uh, good to be with you and just to be able to worship together. Uh, hey, one more thing connected to Lent. So um, uh, we've got Ash Wednesday this coming Wednesday, which will kick off the season. And in addition to that, during the season of Lent, we're also doing a Bible reading plan. So if you, uh, if you missed it, uh, there's a link for it in the email from, uh, from this past week. Uh, but we'll be, uh, be doing a 40-day Bible reading plan together, uh, primarily through the Gospels. Uh, but it takes us through a, a number of scriptures as we prepare our hearts for Easter and reflect on uh, the work of Jesus on our behalf. So I invite you to jump into that. It'll start on Wednesday and would love to have you be part of it. If you don't have the email, maybe let me know. Uh, my email's on the bulletin. Reach out to me. I'll send you a link to it. Uh, but... Uh, that is happening, and we're stoked on that. So uh, today, uh, this Sunday, this is the last week in our series on our vision and our values. And uh, today, we're doing one that's kind of a personal favorite. We're, we're going to talk about being graceful. This is one of the, the core values as a church that we've said we really want to live this out well. Uh, the way that we state it is that we will live in the abundant grace of God, freely receiving it and freely giving it away. And these two things are related, right? Uh, Receiving God's grace and giving God's grace away. The two of these really go together. And we see even in the Lord's Prayer, these two things are paired together because they're they're connected. If you want to be a person who extends grace well to other people, the first part of that is learning how to receive grace from God for ourselves. And and if, if you show me a person who is good at receiving grace for themselves, most often... There's somebody who's well on their way to being able to extend it to others as well. So that's where we're focusing today, and I want to I put this up as sort of a headline for us so we think about this, that to be a graceful Christian, we need to let God be the judge. If we're going to be people who are graceful, letting God be the judge is at, at really kind of the cornerstone of this. Whether we're talking about giving grace to ourselves or giving grace to others, Either way, we have to take off the black robe. If, if you're English, take off the powdered wig as well. We have to get off the bench and say, I don't belong there. God is the one who can and should judge. And, you know, this is all through the New Testament. Jesus says, says do not judge lest you be judged. Uh, Paul, in, in uh, the Epistle to the Romans, he He says, who are you to judge another man's servant, right? The implication is the same there. God is the one who is the judge, not us. So as as far as the principle goes, this is not rocket science, right? This is is not crazy stuff, but it's incredibly hard to do in practice, as anybody knows who has ever tried to be a human being. (laughs) It's very difficult to not take that place of judge and instead to let, let God do this. <clears throat> this is true if it's little things like judging a person for what they wear to big things like holding a grudge towards someone for years and years and years. I had a small example of this uh, yesterday. Uh, so, um, so yesterday I had a plumbing issue that I needed to address. And, of course, a plumbing issue requires multiple trips to Home Depot. 
the first trip to buy the things they need to fix the problem, and then the subsequent trips to return the wrong things that I bought and write, you know, buy the proper things that I should have the first time if I knew what I was doing, and I don't. So that was yesterday. So on my multiple trips to Home Depot, uh, there, there was a, a woman on the corner there at Home Depot uh, who I've, I've seen a number of times and, and have interacted with a little and even given her some money. Um, but uh, there's, there's a woman who's there on the corner, and she's got her sign, and she's, she's asking for money, and she's got her kids there with her, and, which is all at once heartbreaking, but at the same time, kind of my perception in this moment as I'm driving past is it felt like they were on display. And something in me was like, ah, oh, that's not cool. Maybe this is a scam. Maybe, you know, and I start, I start going down that road, right, of, um, of just being like, okay, uh, it feels like this woman is using her children in this moment. And, um, and as, as I got a little further down the road, I kind of stopped myself and was like, wait a minute. I actually don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what her situation is. I don't know if this is what it appears to be. I don't know uh, if she's using her kids and how she's using her kids. I don't know what I would do if... I was in that situation. I might do the same. I might do something far beyond that. I don't know. But it was just this little check in my spirit of seeing I immediately jumped to all these conclusions and then had to put on the brakes a little bit and say, I just, I have no idea. And it's not mine to judge. But we go there so quickly, don't we? It doesn't take very much, a, a, a glance, a look, somebody's appearance, somebody, the group that a person is a part of or we associate them with. We're so quick to make judgments based on very limited knowledge and entirely aside from the fact that we are not the ones to judge. That is God's job and his alone. And, you know, the thing yesterday... That's a situation where I have no personal connection. It's not like I am wounded in some way. It's, this isn't a hard one. Uh, it's, uh, or is it something where, where I'm struggling to forgive myself for something, where I have deep shame? Uh, it's, it's minor, yet there it is. So, <clears throat> friends, we have this need. We all have this need for Jesus to teach us how to live in his rhythms of grace, freely receiving it, freely giving it away. And uh, this morning, as we talk about how we do this, how we grow in our capacity to let God be the judge, uh, we're going to look at John chapter 8. This is an account in the life of Jesus, and in particular, three truths that he teaches us about grace. So let's pray. We'll look at the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, we come this morning so thankful to be received by you. And Lord, for, for each of us here who has experienced your grace in our lives, we are just grateful for that. And God, we pray that you would help us to experience it more and more, deeper and deeper, and that we might both receive that from you and be able to be generous in how we give it away to others. And God, at the same time, we confess that this is really hard. It's difficult for us in in our flesh and its desire to judge. It's difficult for us in a culture that is so judgmental and so eager to pronounce judgment on one another. And so, God, we just look to you. We pray that you would be our teacher, that you would fill us with your spirit, 
you would cause the scriptures to come alive before us, that you would do work in our hearts, God. We ask you for this and trust you for it with faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is John chapter 8. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They're using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So let's pause there. Uh, this is a gnarly scene, isn't it? It's, it's kind of an easy one for us to picture in our minds, and it's, and it's rough. Um, it's very early. It says this is happening at dawn, so, you know, it's still pretty quiet. The city hasn't totally woken up yet, and in the stillness, it's broken by the ruckus of this woman who's been dragged from her bed and then dragged through the streets toward the temple. And Jesus is just about to start teaching when the woman is thrown there before him and, and made to stand while everybody looks at her. And, and the men there ask Jesus to pronounce sentence on her. And as we see Jesus' response, the, the first thing that I want us to note here, the first thing he teaches us about grace is this. It's that grace sees the person and not just the sin. Uh, it, it's, it's not just the sin that grace sees. It sees the person that's standing there as well. Uh, now, before we look at Jesus' response, let's zoom out for just a second here. And maybe uh, a couple things we want to note, a couple of questions we might ask. Uh, one of those is, is, where's the man? The woman has been dragged here to the temple, but, but where is the man? This is a sin that requires two people. And, and the verse that the Pharisees are referencing is in the book of Leviticus, and it's very clear in stating that both the man and the woman, uh, that their crime is punishable by death. So where's the man in the middle of this? Why is he missing from this scene? And, and further, uh, the text tells us, too, that the woman was, was caught in the act of adultery. So how did the Pharisees know where said act was taking place? Uh, and... Uh, and when and all that, and how is it that that is the case? So the text also says here that their intent was to trap Jesus, and, and that intent and the questions that are kind of raised in this text have led many New Testament scholars to conclude that perhaps the whole thing was a setup, uh, that the reason that the man isn't there is that he was in on this. The whole thing is engineered to put Jesus into this impossible situation where he has to either, one, offer compassion to the woman, and then the Pharisees can discredit him by saying that he doesn't honor the scriptures enough to uphold them. Or, on the other hand, uh, he tells the crowd to stone the woman, and then they're able to uh, discredit him as being heartless. So uh, whether the whole thing was set up by the Pharisees or whether it's something that they sort of happened upon, uh, the thing that I want us to see here is that the woman is very much upon in this situation. The woman is used as bait in this trap that they're setting for Jesus. She has been reduced 
to the point where she is a sin to be dealt with and not a person to be loved. Judgmentalism always reduces. It always shrinks. It always narrows down a person's humanity. Grace. Grace deals with sin too. But grace always expands dignity, humanity. It sees the person and not just the sin. Uh, look at the language here that's used to, uh, to describe the woman. It says that, that uh, she was a woman caught in adultery. And then the Pharisees refer to her again. And it's, it's so interesting to me. Uh, but in their words to Jesus, they say, Such women, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Right? She's been dropped into a category a category known as women who commit adultery. There's a label that has been placed on her. And the thing that's so pernicious about our labels is that they, they allow us to judge a person more easily. They allow us to reduce a person into a, a member of a larger group where we're no longer seeing them as them. We've shrunk them to a point where it makes it easier for us to judge. Right? The, the implicit in that, right? Is, is you know what these kind of women are like. You know. And so what more do we need to say? In this situation, the, the woman is no longer a person with a story, with dreams, with fears, with hopes. There's, there's no understanding of how perhaps she got to this place in the, first, in the first place. She's simply a sinner of a particular type. She's been reduced And, friends, when we do that, uh, when we're angry, uh, when when we feel offended, when we see something and it's personal or maybe it's not personal, but when we see something and we pass judgment, uh, when we reduce a person to their sin, we feel a certain freedom to treat them in a way that we wouldn't do otherwise. Right? Think about this woman, the indignity of being dragged through the street, uh, used as a means to an end, um, likely in some form of undress, somewhat haggard, you know, uh, and, then, and then this is the part that really kills me, and then made to stand in front of the group while her sin is exposed. Right? This is not, none of this is necessary. Right? If these religious leaders are indeed intent on dealing with this person and their sin, there are a hundred other ways this could have been done where her dignity did not have to be destroyed in the process. But once we reduce, once we label, once we stereotype, once we put somebody into a particular category and box and slap our label on it, there's a freedom inside of us to treat them as less than a person who is made in the image of God. Uh, And think about this if you can. Think about this in relation to to your pain. If you can think of something in your life that you found especially difficult to forgive, maybe it's something that even still you find difficult to forgive. Maybe, Maybe that person did something that is unpardonable. But, one, again, you are not their judge. I am not their judge. God is their judge. And two, 
it doesn't change their worth. That person, this woman in the text, the person in your story, they are still made in the image of God. They are still a son or daughter of the king. They are still a child of God. They are still someone that Jesus found worth enough that he would die for them. Grace. Grace doesn't just see the sin. It sees the person standing there as well. And and that's Jesus' response. This is part of why his response is so interesting to me. Verse 6, it says that they're, they're peppering him with the questions, right? What do we do with this woman? And he stoops down on the ground and begins to write on the ground with his finger. And, oh, I'd love to know what it is that he's writing on the ground. Much ink spilled over this through the years. What could he be writing? Some people have said, well, he's probably writing the sins of the men who are standing there holding the stones. Right? That would be a delicious end of the story. I don't know if that's the case, but oh, love to think it was. Uh, others think it's a reference back to the giving of the Ten Commandments where we're told that the finger of God writes the law in the stone. And here the finger of God again is in the sand and he's writing. I don't know. I don't know what it is that he's writing, but I do know this. If Jesus stoops down in response to what's happening and begins to write on the ground, it means that every eye in that courtyard is no longer on the woman. It's on him. She's being exposed. She's being made to stand. She is the object of all attention. But Jesus doesn't buy into that. He doesn't stare at her. And in fact, he does something that makes everybody stare at him. And I wonder if part of that gesture is just restoring a small part of this woman's dignity. Because he sees her. He doesn't just see what she has done. He sees her. There's a compassion in that response. So she's worth something. And, And friend, listen, for you as well, this is true, and I hope you feel this. You are more than the worst thing that you've ever done. You cannot be reduced to your sin because you are made in the image of God. You are loved by him. You are a child of the king. You are more than the worst thing that you have ever done. And we see this reflected in the New Testament response to how we as followers of Jesus are to deal with sin when we encounter it. And just note the contrast between this passage and what we see here in John 8 and what the Pharisees do. But this is Galatians 6, chapter 1 and 2. It says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. When sin happens, and it does, this is part of our humanity, we are to deal with it gently. And we're to help each other in it, to carry each other's burdens. Uh, Can you see there's a dignity in that? There is a respect for the person, there is a respect for humanity. And friends, for us as Christ followers, if we're living into this, it means that we don't respond to sin in a way that dehumanizes others. It means that we don't cancel, we don't ghost, 
We don't gossip about the person. We don't stereotype. We don't reduce people in who they are as people who are beloved by God. In contrast, we deal with them gently, just as Christ deals with us. Now, grace, grace sees the person, not just the sin. That's number one. Second thing that we see from Jesus in this passage teaches us about grace. Number two, it's that grace sees oneself as a fellow sinner. Uh, not only does, does grace differentiate between the person and their sin, but it sees oneself as a fellow sinner as well. Uh, again, the story, this is verse 7. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So Jesus, he's still, you know, he's crouching there, he's doodling, whatever he's doing there in the sand. All the eyes are on him, and they keep pestering him to answer, and then finally he stands and utters these famous words of grace. Let any of you who is without sin throw the first stone. And then he goes back to writing. Uh, Friends, one of the reasons that we fail to offer grace to others well is we forget that we are sinners too. And it's so important, I think, for us to understand as we're reading this account in John 8, uh, the men who are participating in this, the Pharisees, they didn't recognize that what they were doing was wrong. Right? Now, the scriptures are very clear. Adultery is a sin. And so on that point, they were right. Uh, the scriptures speak to it, and whether, whether you agree with what they're doing or not, we could say in all honesty, there was a moral cause because it is addressing an area of immorality. But in their quote-unquote righteous anger, they are blinded to how they are sinning against this woman, to say nothing about the rest of their lives, but even in this moment, how they are sinning against this woman, unnecessarily shaming her, reducing her to her sin, using her as a prop, labeling her as part of this group they've conceived of, that's women who commit adultery, uh, trying to trap Jesus, all of this. They are so steeped in this, even as they carry out this action, but they aren't seeing it because they're convinced that what they're doing is right and, and not without warrant. There's a kernel of truth inside of that. It's the way they're doing it, though, is, is horrible. But friends, the thing is, uh, they aren't unique in this. The truth is, you and I are probably never in more danger of getting it wrong than when we are experiencing what we might call righteous anger. When we are incensed about something that is wrong, we are ever so close at that moment to falling into wrong actions ourselves. The one does not negate the other, right? The reality of sin is what it is. But when we are convinced that our anger is righteous, it's incredibly easy to step into that place where God ceases to be the judge and we 
become the judge instead. By contrast, uh, we need to recognize our own sin and realize that we aren't in a position to judge. Only God is and to let him do so. And Jesus, in, in this text, I mean, what he does here is, is so brilliant. He creates the situation where that can happen, right? He creates an opening in this drama that's playing out around him where the men involved are able to get just a moment of reflection and recognize their own sinfulness too. And one by one, they drop their stones and walk away. Uh, we're told the older ones do first, right? The implication here being that they've had more life experience, more failures, more sin, that they're able to become aware of more quickly and to realize in that moment that they are fellow sinners too and as a result not worthy to judge. And then eventually all of them, uh, either because they're conscious stricken or because you know, they, they lose their nerve, all of them walk away. Now, we might note this too. Uh, the this, this statement Jesus makes, if any of you are without sin, let them be the first one to throw a stone. Note there that he doesn't say, if any of you standing here have not committed adultery, then go ahead and throw a stone. He doesn't narrow it down to that particular sin. Uh, it's sin in general. And this is important because we almost always regard sins that we don't personally commit as more serious than the ones that we do. Right? The sins that we commit, those are normal people's sins. The sins that other people commit, well, that's the really bad stuff. But my stuff, no, no, not so much. Right? And, and we can live in this sort of weird dissonance where we do understand on one level that we're a sinner, but we still regard ourselves as better than those other sinners because they're the ones that are really the problem. Right? Winston Churchill, I thought, summed this up so brilliantly as he did so many things. He says, I know that I'm a worm but I believe that I am a glowworm, <laughs> right? And that is the condition of our hearts. But Jesus doesn't leave an opening for that. He doesn't ask whether or not the people standing there have committed adultery themselves. He asks if they themselves have committed sin. And of course, the answer is yes. You know, one of the places that we get hung up when it comes to forgiving others is this idea that this person that's wronged me doesn't deserve forgiveness, and therefore I'm not going to give it. Uh, and, of course, you're probably right when you say that. They probably don't deserve forgiveness. But the point is, and what Jesus is, is causing this crowd to reflect on, is that they don't deserve forgiveness either. And therefore, we have no business putting on the robe and sitting on the bench and becoming the judge of the other person as well. How do we do this? How do we allow Jesus to create spaces in our lives where we're able to become aware of the fact that we are fellow sinners too? Well, he's, he's given us a mechanism for this. It's, it's the daily confession of prayer. It's stopping and reflecting and asking God to examine us and then asking forgiveness for our sins. And, and you do this, friends. If, if praying the Lord's Prayer is part of how you pray, then you, you do this 
every time you pray. It becomes part of your daily life because it's right in there. Forgive me, God, for how I've sinned. And then beautifully, it's paired with, help me forgive others that have sinned against me too. See, it's receiving grace and it's giving grace away. And we can't become good at either of those things if we aren't able to view ourselves as fellow sinners. Grace sees oneself as a fellow sinner. Uh, Finally, number three. Third truth about grace that we learn from Jesus in the story is this. It's that grace accepts the person without condoning their sin. Verse 9. It says at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, just as important as what Jesus did and what he said in this text is also what he did not do. He doesn't say in some way, shape, or form to the woman, I forgive you because it's okay. It wasn't that big a deal. You're consenting adults. Nobody was hurt. You know, any of the numerous things that he could say, you know, there's nothing for you to be sorry for. No, he says to her, Go and sin no more. Go and leave your life of sin. There's an acknowledgement there that what she did was wrong. But he accepts her all the same. This is what grace does, friends. Grace accepts the person without condoning their sin. And friends, we have to understand, forgiving sin is not the same as excusing sin. Those are two different ideas. And we mess up grace when we conflate these two. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, um, who I guess I quote from time to time. I love that guy. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, in addition to the nonfiction he wrote, he also wrote a series of short stories called The Father Brown Mysteries. Has anyone read these or maybe seen them on PBS? They became a show. Um, but it's... It's a series of short stories about this, uh, this Roman Catholic priest who goes about, and, and as he goes about, different crimes occur, and he solves these. He's like this detective who's a priest, and it's, it's good times. He's, this, uh, he's described as kind of this, this short, round little man, all clothed in brown, and he's got these sharp eyes and this sharp mind. He's solving crimes. It's terrific. So there's this one Father Brown story where Father Brown is traveling through the countryside and he stops at this particular village. And the day that he arrives there, this nobleman returns to the village after a 30-year absence. And the nobleman had ran away 30 years prior after he, uh, he had a duel with his brother in which he killed the brother. And the brother is described as a good-for-nothing brother, right? The, the nobleman is noble and everybody loves the guy. And the brother was, was kind of a worm and so, you know, the nobleman comes back, and he's like, this is what happened. And he's racked with guilt, and everyone's so happy to see him, and they embrace him, and, and they just want to forgive and let it go. And, and the priest, Father Brown, he's, he's a little skeptical, and he wants to ask some questions, and the townspeople are like, what's wrong with you? And they're scolding him. 
you're supposed to be a man of God. Haven't you read what Jesus wrote about charity and forgiveness and all this stuff? And so the story is unfolding, right? And then it comes to light that the nobleman is not actually the nobleman. He's the good-for-nothing brother. He won the duel, went into hiding, assumed the dead brother's identity, and then comes back and presents himself as the nobleman. And the people, uh, the, the townspeople, they hear this, and, and they're realizing that they've been duped, and they're furious. And they say, we don't even need a trial. Let's just take him out to the tree. We will hang him right now for his crimes. And Father Brown, as the, the narrative goes on, Father Brown says this. He says to the townspeople, it seems to me that you only pardon the sins that you don't really think sinful. You only forgive criminals when they commit what you don't regard as crimes, but rather as conventions. You forgive a conventional duel just as you forgive a conventional divorce. You forgive because in your mind there isn't anything to be forgiven. And we do the same, friends. Often, we get very selective in our forgiveness, and we only forgive if we don't actually believe there's been a crime. We forgive the things that we find forgivable because they're things we don't really care about. But if it's something that's big, If it's a real sin, if it's a real problem, well, then our forgiveness is withheld. Now, that's not really forgiveness. It's excusing. It's condoning. And that's not grace. Think about it this way. If if there is no actual sin to forgive, and you say, I forgive you, or or, or maybe if you don't regard this thing as a sin, and you say, I forgive you, well, you're not really extending forgiveness, right? Because what is there that you're actually forgiving? And, and the converse of this is true as well. And so we, we pick and choose. And we say, in essence, to somebody, well, your racism is not going to be forgiven because it is unforgivable. But, well, your sexual sin, well, yeah, everyone's consenting. It's not really that big a deal. Yeah, I forgive you. But it's because we don't actually care. Or vice versa. Right? The person for whom there's no sin bigger than sexual sin, and that won't be forgiven. But greed or gossip, well, that's just, you know, we all fail in those ways, right? The difference between excusing and forgiving. Do you feel that? Do you see how that, how that plays out? Mm-hmm. Ah. Philip Yancey put it this way, I appreciate it. He says, says in response to a part of us that says, well, I can't forgive because they might do it again. Uh, he says, well, every other religion offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. There is a risk when we forgive that the person uh, will do what they did again. And sometimes that becomes a barrier to us. Uh, But it's a risk that it seems God himself was willing to take. I think of Romans 2 where it says that it's God's kindness that leads us to forgiveness. It's his graciousness that leads us towards repentance. 
The risk seems to be something that God feels is worthwhile. When we choose to forgive sin and not, not excuse it, but to forgive it, to see what's done as sinful and to say, I'm going to forgive anyway. Well, that's costly. It costs you and I to forgive something that we don't feel like forgiving. And in that, in that we're reflecting a bit of Christ because his forgiveness of us is costly too. It's not just that God brushed aside our sins and excused them. He said, no, those, those sins are real and there's a price to be paid. And he says, I will pay that price. That's the gospel. And when you and I are able to absorb that and live in the reality of that, then it makes us a little more capable of being able to look at that person who did something inexcusable to us and say, I'll bear the cost of that. I'll bear the cost of what they did. I'm choosing to forgive. It's interesting, and I think pretty informative for us, that uh, in this crowd of people who are all prepared to throw stones at this woman, Jesus is the only one who could have thrown a stone. Right? If the standard that he is laying out is, if you have no sin, you can throw a stone, well, no one else standing there meets that standard except for him. And he chooses not to. He chooses to accept the person, even as he doesn't condone the sin. And friends, here's where I think it it gets most personal for us. Is we don't understand the story and we don't understand the gospel if we don't read this and see that we are the woman. That we are the one who is deserving of punishment, even deserving of death. But we don't get what we deserve. Grace gives us something better. Grace receives us, even as the sin that we are guilty of is paid for by another. And I'd ask, where where are you in this today? Where does this land for you? Maybe you're in a place where you need help forgiving yourself. Where there's things that you know in theory God has forgiven, that his blood has covered, but you can't quite connect that on the level of the heart. Man, if that's you today, I invite you just to reach for the hand of Jesus and accept that he believes you are worth dying for in spite of whatever it is that you've done. And perhaps this is something you'd want to be prayed for today as well. And as we're responding in communion and in prayer a bit later, I'd invite you maybe to be prayed for in that. Or maybe you're one who's once walked close with God, but that's slipped over time. And forgiving yourself and receiving God's grace and feeling the need for it, all of this, Oh, perhaps today is a day to receive his grace in a fresh way and to say, I want to live inside of that, not apart from what you offer. Or maybe today you're in a place where somebody has hurt you and letting go of that, that grudge 
that pain, that hatred, just feels like more than you would ever be able to do. I want to tell you today, you can do it in Christ's strength. It can happen. Pray today. Ask Jesus to meet you in that and to be walking you closer and closer to forgiving as he forgives. Wherever you're at today, I want to invite you to receive what Jesus has done for you, to take in his grace and ask him to help you to give it to others well at the same time. Let's pray together.